All right. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the HCD VidCast, episode four. Um, here we're going to be talking about some curious conversations about to be or not to be in remote market research. What do we mean by that? We mean all the things that we do with neuro and psychology. Can it be done online? Should it be done online? Catherine and I are going to talk about those things today. So welcome to the fourth episode. Without uh, further ado, let's go ahead and talk about who we are and launch right into our conversation for today. My name is Michelle Nigella. Um, I'm a behavioral neuroscientist and VP of Research and Innovation at HCD Research, and I'm here with Catherine Ambrose. Catherine. Hi, everybody. I am Catherine Ambrose. I'm the manager of Behavioral and Marketing Sciences at HCD, and um, HCD is really excited that we can put on these vidcasts, and we hope that you have been enjoying them. So let's get yeah. on. Let's get the show on the For road. For <laughs> those of you that aren't familiar with HCD, we are a market research consumer research provider. We use all sorts of different methodologies from your traditional qual and quant methodologies all the way to neuroscience and um, psychological methodologies. Um, the type of research we do can take place anywhere in the world, um, sometimes online, sometimes in person, uh, depending on the situation and making sure we are using a validated way of doing that. Um, and also across the spectrum of things that you might do in marketing and consumer research. So anything from product development, through all the way through marketing, exploration, all the way through validation. Um, and, you know, at HCD, we really value doing valid research, right? So making sure we use the right tool for the right question. Uh, and that's really what prompted us to have this conversation today. Um, we use whatever is most appropriate for the research question and situation at hand. Um, and given, you know, the current situation, which, you know, I don't know what time, in the timeline you're you're listening to this vidcast uh, but right now we are in the the heat of the moment of uh, the the COVID-19 lockdown um, and so a lot of research has been moving online uh, so the question that has come up from a lot of our clients is about okay what can we do what what's something that we can do online um, that otherwise we'd have to do in person how do we go about doing that is it still good research and we're here to talk about that today. So going virtual, how do we do that? Pretty much anything right. can go virtual, right? Well, in theory, basically anything can go virtual. <laughs> Even this vidcast is virtual. We're <laughs> states away from each other. <laughs> this is true. And, you know, there's a lot of advantages to going virtual, right? So one, you know, like in a situation like now where we're in lockdown and nobody wants to be getting sick, obviously, you know, there's the advantage of you don't have to go into a location where you might be exposed. Um, it could be cheaper because again, you don't have to have people, you know, on site, um, and that can cost a lot more money. Uh, you might be able to get more people, right. And right. maybe a broader range of people all over the world. Um, you know, so a study that you might only be, get, be able to get like 30 people in, maybe you can instead have hundreds, right. If right. And it can be cost-effective too. Sure. And a there's, you know, Technology is moving leaps and bounds every day. And so it can be a pretty smooth transition. There's really good technology out there that can, can handle a lot of these things. You know, we have better webcams now, we have faster internet speeds. So there definitely, um, there's definitely some good data that can be collected, right? Absolutely, yep. But, but yep. <laughs> <laughs> there's always a but, and we are always here to talk about it. Um, you know, not in, in, a, in a scandalous way. 
Um, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, we're we're always here to mention the the sort of drawbacks of things and the cautions that you need to take. Um, so what you know, even though the technology is great and you can get more people, what are some of those drawbacks we want to talk about today, just in general? Right. So I mean, it's very important to consider with any discussion about virtual or remote research there are things that are often overlooked or they get taken for granted because- like it sounds super cool, but- Exactly, like the glitz and glam of it um, can sometimes overshadow uh, some of the really important nitty gritty things to consider. And one of the most important things uh, to, to really look into as you're considering doing online research is that there can be so much variability in, respondent, in the respondent experience. So it, every, listen, even Michelle and I, we have different Wi-Fi connections right now because we're not in the same room. So it could be, there's a lot of um, discussions that happen in technology. When you're first learning about the, the technology, people like to talk about how smoothly it can run and how easily you can integrate it into things and how great your results can look. But uh, if even having a great graph, if it doesn't, if it isn't backed by strong data, um, it's not going to really give you the best findings. So absolutely, yeah, and you know you don't have any control, right? Mm -hmm. So no matter what method you're using, you don't know what's going on in that person's house, right? right. So do they have a bunch of loud music playing in the background? Um, and this will be different for each measure. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, but you know, there's a lot of noise that can happen that can distract people from whatever you're trying to measure them doing. Um, you know, there's the quality of the webcam, so not just the the internet speed itself, but maybe the quality of the webcam if you need that for, for right. the measure that you're doing. Um, so, and the other thing I like to mention is, yeah, like the salesman, of course, you know, is going to tell you all the good things, and there are a lot of good things. Um, but the thing I always like to say is that a widget salesman is going to sell you a widget. They're not there to sell you something else, right? Mm -hmm. So they're going to tell you that it can do everything and that there's no problems with it. They're not going to tell you the problems. So keep that in mind as you, you go and forth and navigate the virtual possibilities out there, because um, if someone's trying to sell you something, they are aiming to sell you something, right? Right, and, and I, I would piggyback off of that too, that there are certain things that you do wanna consider and that you can't just assume because it might be true for you, um, because some people might, might not have a computer with a webcam attached to it, mm -hmm. or they mm -hmm. might have an older phone or- yep different browser versions, like all of these things can influence your remote research. And there's so many possibilities out there. And to that point, there may be a whole group of people that don't even have access, right? So that's come up a lot in this mm -hmm. um, lockdown situation that we have where um, there's a real privilege of people who have internet and decent computers to be able to do online learning or be able to work from home. So there's a large group of people that don't can't even participate in that research. So then what's the population that you're actually measuring may be important to think about as well. Right, right. So we're gonna touch on different types of research in the next slides and really be able to help decipher if it's a strong tool to use for remote research or if it's something that we should maybe reconsider. Mm -hmm. um, Maybe we think about how really you're good. using it. Yeah, exactly. Um, they could all be good possibilities. Glitz and glam is great. Everything's very exciting, but it's always good to proceed with caution. So what are those cautions? Um, yes. <laughs> first one we're going to talk about is a methodology we use a lot. And 
It's called, you know, physiological methods or biometrics. Um, and these are the gold standard of um, neuromarketing or consumer neuroscience. Now they're considered the gold standard because they are very reliable and they're very sensitive, right? Mm -hmm. If done in person. Um, so we do them a lot when we're looking at things that are very difficult to tell the differences between um, because these measures are, are so, you know, uh, sensitive, right? So mm -hmm. some of these measures include facial electromyography or FEMG, um, and that are the electrodes placed on the face here. They can measure positive and negative emotional valence. So if someone's feeling more positive, more negative on what they're seeing or experiencing. Um, and they're for, related to the different groups in, in muscle groups in the face um, that are associated with positive and negative emotional valence. Heart rate and heart rate variability, um, that's measured off the forearm. It's a measure of attention um, and also approach withdrawal. This is literally looking at heart rate changes. So if it's mm -hmm. speeding up, if it's slowing down, how variable is that change? Um, galvanic skin response, GSR, uh, that's a measure of arousal. So looking at differences in skin conductance. So how much you're sweating, literally, right? Um, right. So if you think about it in that way, it's like the more you're sweating, the more excited you are. And that totally makes sense. Um, so these are considered the gold standard because each one of them is directly correlated and associated with the measure they say they are. So FEMG is directly associated with um, emotional valence, heart rate is for attention, galvanic skin response directly correlated to arousal. Now this is different from some other measures where you might have other intervening factors. So for example, if you're measuring brain waves, you could be measuring a lot of other things going on, right? Right. But these are a lot more, you know, clear and straightforward. So that's why, again, they are the gold standard. Um, but they're the gold standard when they're done in person, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So it's kind of interesting. If we want to break this down a little bit, um, FEMG, it, the way it gathers information is through certain muscle areas. Uh, and then you get the electrical activity that's occurring. So it can be really challenging for what se seemingly obvious reasons as to why, um, if you're not placing the electrode in the exact right place on the person's face, um, you won't actually be getting the, your, the data that you'll be getting might be a little bit- um, mm -hmm. The wrong muscle group, potentially. Exactly. Or, um, maybe some other noise going on, right? Eye blinking or whatever it might be. Um, so now, which one of these could actually be done online? now? A lot of these things you can do through a camera, right? So a mm -hmm. webcam. But again, the problem is how good of the quality is your camera? Because being able to see those minute changes in muscle activity on the face is going to be quite different um, than actually measuring the electrical activity, right? Yes, absolutely. You have to and see the movement. Um, so you need a really good camera to be able to do that. Um, now, heart rate variability, there are things that look, they can do, um, can look at the, the sort of like the pulse rate on your neck, right? Mm -hmm. Or maybe on your forehead, I think I've seen it as well. Well, it's actually interesting. So for cardiac activity in general, not just HRV, it's, it does happen. People do do it and you can actually get, um, gather heart rate from even something and just to clarify, heart rate, not heart rate variability, uh, you can hear that from something from your phone. So people have apps where you can actually get a heart rate reading. However, right. there is a lot of respondent variability. And um, it's, it's different when you measure 
heart rate, heart rate variability with an electrocardiogram, which is an EKG versus something like an indirect measure because you will lose, you'll lose accuracy. So, right. so how accurate is your um, Apple watch? Right. So Apple watch tends to use a, a light, for, uh, it's actually light. So it's red light and um, blue light is used for um, determining the blood flow. So it's kind of similar, actually. Uh, it's the same concept on a different, a different scale of um, FEMG, uh, F, excuse me, fMRI. Um, they use a light, but because they're using light to determine blood flow uh, and oxygen levels, uh, they use that as the way to determine your heart rate. So since that is an indirect measure, like I said, it loses accuracy versus something sure. that's a direct measure. When now we've actually experienced this firsthand. Um, years ago, we tested out one of these online webcam versions of heart rate, mm -hmm. and we saw some just huge differences between that and the in-person measure, the mm -hmm. electrode measure, um, to the point where it was almost opposite in a lot of cases. And so we kind of took the stance that we weren't going to use um, webcam-based heart rate. Um, right. Now, we also fairly recently were looking at some of these wearables, right, that you mm -hmm. can also do. Um, and so what's the issue there? Well, again, it, it all goes back to variability. So if you're, um, you, well, there, there's a couple things. Like you were saying, we looked at using webcams and things like that. Wearables, you really want to look at who your vendor is and to make sure that you have a vendor that's reputable and really fits your needs and actually has that in-lab experience in addition to online. So let's say you had like top of the line wearable. I think the issue still ends up becoming there's a lot of dropout, right? Mm -hmm. And so something like heart rate, if you want to look at the um, experience that someone's having, you, you can't afford to have any dropout of the data. Right. right. So they, over the long would, term, say 24 hours, a wearable is going to be somewhat accurate. You can get some learning from that. But, you know, when we do this on the forearm, we can do it within, you know, seconds. Yeah. And, and like you said, the high throwout rate is something that it's honestly the nature of the beast when it comes to most remote research. Um, but you have to also make sure you, the things that you can control, you, you do well. So Sure. Yeah, like having really strong instructions and explaining things. Again, that control, right? Exactly. Like yeah. explaining things as best as you can. So, and so I think we can probably, you know, sum this one up into like, you know, cautious to don't do, right? Yes, I would absolutely yeah. agree. And I would, I would personally argue that to, yeah, to, to stray from it, uh, yeah. I'm not con completely convinced that it's not strong enough yet and also um it's just it's challenging that you you, you can't control everything and right you struggle with it all right let's uh carry on um EEG. you know whenever we get on calls with people who want to do some sort of neuroscience measure they immediately think of the eg right so mm -hmm. when you think neuroscience you think brain which means you're thinking of reading minds and mm -hmm. you know, we could go on and wax poetic for hours about the problem with that <laughs> but right. Um, EEG is electroencephalography, and it is the idea of being able to look at the electrical activity across the scalp 
and make interpretations about what the person is experiencing. Are they, you know, more um, having, are they thinking more? Is there more cognitive load going on? Um, are they more positive, negative, all sorts of different things you can measure with EEG. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously, since you have to put something on someone's head, that is something they actually have to do in person. It's not something you can get from a webcam. Um, however, years ago, there was a um, company that would send out EEG headcaps that people could wear, and then they would send them back to the company, and that company would download the data and, and make some measures from that. Um, so what are your thoughts about the possibility of any EEG <laughs> being done remotely? <laughs> so personally, that makes me cringe. <laughs> right, right. Um, just because yeah. EEG in general there you have to be so so cautious it's pretty problematic right 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 and it, you have to be so cautious with the amount of artifact that an artifact is basically anything that clouds the data so um another thing to consider is your brain is working lightning fast the electrical activity um it it's you know it's so incredibly fast that there is possibility for crosstalk where you you know it's really hard to, to yeah it, the brain is complicated <laughs> so yeah to put it simply um, and if you look at the the slide here i mean there's three different eg head caps here caps mm -hmm. and um clearly the one with the woman with it on is a much more complicated cap right that's more academic grade yep. yeah and then the one right above her um, I don't even know what that is. Uh, to be honest, it looks like a pair of sunglasses being worn backwards. Um, so it's just, but just with the arms, not with the actual sunglasses. Um, no, so that actually has, I believe, two to maybe three electrodes on it. Right. You can imagine just by looking at those two images, which EEG is going to be able to collect more data. Yeah. And the, the headsets that that company back in the day was mailing out were something in between the, those two caps that you see, the gray ones, um, somewhere in between there, because you're not going to be sending out, you know, the more complicated cap because someone can't actually put that on themselves, right? right. Um, I'm going to give this one a big thumbs down. Do not do this at home. Uh, Sounds good situation. to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there's just too many problems, too much noise, and you have to have a better quality measure in order to get anything meaningful. Right. As well as having a technician with you, yep, to make sure that it's you're minimizing any chance. Yeah, because even in the best of in-person situations, it's still difficult. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, eye tracking. We do this a lot. Um, you know, it, there's two main ways you can do eye tracking. Well, three, I guess, if you, mm -hmm. you also do the webcam. Um, so one is that on the bottom left there, you see a bar that basically sits underneath, say, a screen. Right. Um, and it it's looks at your eye movements, right? very right. accurate. Um, then you have the glasses that someone can wear. Uh, and, and that, again, it sees where people are looking. That way you don't have to necessarily be looking at a screen. It could be someone, say, looking at a shelf or at um, an actual, actual package or something, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now there's also web-based, right? So it's going to use your webcam. Um, right. So that that is an option as well. What's the differences among those? So using... Across the board, when you're using eye tracking, you should absolutely make sure that there is a calibration period. That is first and foremost, regardless of if you're doing it in person or online or with a webcam. So what does um, calibration mean? Calibration means that it's it has to take a moment to find where your pupils are and how they move, right? Exactly. It's like a practice run. 
Yeah. yeah. So basically, um, the idea of, of calibration is just this period where the system learns how the person's eye moves and when it's looking at certain parts of a screen, basically. And um, that should be done for in-person and online. Um, with the biggest thing, again, is you want to make sure that if you're doing research for eye tracking through a webcam or through online, um, you want to make sure that the lighting is good because shadows can create a real problem right. during calibration periods um, in picking up the eyes. And Other speed as well, I would imagine. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And what about things like glasses? I was just, yep, you read my mind. So. We both wear glasses. So. <laughs> it's true. Um, <laughs> and um, glasses can present a real problem, especially if the prescription um, is stronger because that can affect the camera's ability to pick up um, where the eyes are looking. So usually um, if you're using something like those glasses or what's on the left of this screen, the, the desktop, they actually have um, infrared light that is reflecting off your pupils and that is how they're able to determine uh, where your gaze is on the screen. When you have really thick glasses, that can actually um, cloud that and disrupt that, making it really challenging to be able to um, get that reading. In addition to that, there's also problems with the angle where if the camera is getting hit at a certain angle, um, it won't actually have a, a really strong reading of what the eye looks like. So you want another thing to consider is making sure that the angles of the participants uh, remains relatively uh, consistent and yeah so there's probably ways you, I mean it's clear you could do that if you were in person you had a technician that was right there to help situate the person but when mm -hmm. they're at home you know I'm sure there's some you know AI and machine learning that can maybe throw up a, a, a screen that says you know you need to recalibrate or you need to change your position right. um, however you know it sounds like there's so many specifics that go into this that there again could be a high throwout rate as we kind of talk about with all of these online yes. tools. Yeah. Um, how do you identify someone that you have to throw out? So um, it really comes to the quality of the of the output. If um, and it, it sounds kind of funny, but when you're looking at the output, sometimes the eyes look like they're just bouncing all over the screen and when with a gaze point, and and that's how you kind of know that. Um, the camera's just not picking up where the eyes are looking. Mm -hmm. um, and it could be something as simple as keeping your hair out of your face would help. All right, because it's breaking the connection hair. a little bit, right? Exactly. And yeah. I mean, there's other things too, like that can make interference, such as just even the camera quality, the condition of them. Um, sure. Is there then, dust on it, for example? Right, right. <laughs> and, and even... Um, when a person, again, this is another thing to consider with eye tracking. Um, if you are trying to do eye tracking online and say they don't have a camera associated with their thing, you can either have a hard stop or so that that basically means that they don't continue with their research or you do a soft stop where they would just bypass the camera part, mm -hmm. not have the eye tracking and just do the survey. It. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Continue with another portion. Sure. Of but you just want to make sure that you're still getting enough people that you're getting some valid research there. Right. Um, because when you look at some of these images we have on the screen, the heat maps are based on on how many people. Right. So it's kind of like mm -hmm. 
um, not only how much time the person is sort of burning into that particular image, um, like staring at that one particular part, but also the, the amount of people that are doing it too. There's some algorithms there. Yes. Um, now on the other image, we have a gaze plot, and that means the order that the people are actually looking in. Both of those pieces of information are really important, um, but just imagine if you did have some sort of bad respondent that is basically muddying up all that data, right? Right, and I mean, even with the gaze plot, the path of navigation, you, you also have to consider that some things happen that are just outside of your control, where mm -hmm. People, dog barking, right? Exactly. Yep, yep. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a baby's crying, dogs barking. Yeah. Anything can happen to distract you and then refocus your attention towards. Absolutely. So, you know, this one kind of has like a, a thumbs up and down, right? So yep, yep. Um, you can do this. You, you just want to make sure you have a lot of people and that you clean your data, right? Get rid of bad respondents. Um, you still may be able to get some good information there online. Okay, uh, facial coding. Now this is one that I think you and I could probably wax poetic on for days. <laughs> um, <laughs> so facial coding, it's pretty uh, basic, right? It basically uses cameras, even in person, um, to look at people's faces and see how their facial expressions change in relation mm -hmm. to some sort of stimulus. So mm -hmm. it categorizes those faces that people make into emotional reactions, right? So they have the, the basic emotions there, joy, surprise, sadness, contempt, disgust, anger, fear. Um, and there's an idea that you can sort of look at that and how it spreads out to um, some other emotions, right? Right. Um, there's a couple issues that I just like to mention about facial coding before we launch into, um, and it relates as well to uh, doing it online and remotely. Um, you look at the list of emotions there and notice there's only one positive emotion and that's joy. The rest mm -hmm. are all negative. Um, you know, so that's, <laughs> that's, that's a real problem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, another problem is uh, that of those more negative emotions, um, do they relate to what you need them to? So if you're looking at people's responses to logos or to, you know, tasting a yogurt or looking at an ad, is disgust or fear really something that's even needed, you know? Mm -hmm. um, do people actually experience joy when looking at logos? Um, you know, it's, there's some questions there that, that are definitely uh, important to think about. How's this input, how's this information going to help you in understanding your brand? Um, another issue that applies across all facial coding is uh, the fact that people's facial expressions are a form of communication. And right. so, you know, if there's another person in the room or even more importantly, if whatever they're experiencing, say like an ad has a person in it that's smiling, your automatic response is to smile back. It's reflexive. You can't actually change that. Someone smiles at you, you smile back. It's communication. Right. Um, so it's really just mirroring what you're seeing then, right? Yeah. So then what are you even measuring then? So if everybody smiles at an ad that has people smiling, does that mean they actually feel happy about the ad they're viewing? I don't think so, right? Yeah. Um, so then it becomes a question of what are you even measuring at that point? But you know, that's across all facial coding. When it comes to online and remote facial coding, I think that steps it up even worse, right? Yeah. So always, all the issues would, we talked about before. Yeah, and I would also just mention here too that there is um, one other, like you just want to consider also the cultural component that people, mm -hmm. like you said, 
it's a form of communication, but everyone expresses themselves differently. Right. So right. that's something to always consider when, like, when considering facial coding as an option. Oh yeah. Cause one of the problems I've always had is like, how do you know if it's enough expression to be considered joy? So if people smile a little bit, is that joy? right? Are they actually happy? Um, and when you think about the different cultures in that respect, well, some people emote more in their face and other people less, right? right? So where is that threshold that you decide that, okay, that is significantly afraid, that is significantly joy. Um, it's not clear where that line is and how that applies to, to uh, cultural differences. Um, and these basic emotions are supposed to be universal, but there's a lot of research out there in the psychological field that has brought a lot of that into question, whether they're whether or not they're actually universal. Um, so is there a place where you would think that facial coding could work? It's really good with babies, uh, <laughs> right? Because uh, they, they uh, that's their main way of communicating, right? So when you're doing like feeding studies, it can be really important to be able to do or some other sort of um, basic studies with, with babies and children. Um, where can it be used? Yeah, I think there is still some input as long as you are okay with the type of data that you're getting, right? Yeah. Um, or is joy something you're actually looking for? Does it make sense for your product? Uh, and then you have to take it with a grain of salt too, right? Because mm -hmm. then you have to design your study correctly so that you don't have another person in the room. The stimulus that they're looking at doesn't have someone at, with an emotional face mm -hmm. um, or even a neutral face for that matter because then the person's going to react the same way. Um, so just some caveats you have to definitely pay attention to. And then you carry all of that over to when it goes online and you add in that, yeah, it has to have a high quality camera. It has to have a high speed internet connection. Um, you don't have control over the noise. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, you have a bunch of issues like people's facial hair or whether or not their actual hair, their head hair gets in the way. Uh, are they wearing glasses? All these things form compl complications that lead to an extremely high dropout rate, right? Right. Okay. So it seems like, what would we say? Thumbs down? Thumbs? I'm going to say thumbs down. <laughs> okay. Um, and except in cases where it does seem appropriate. So it is, all of these are case by case, right? Of course. Um, but let's say you did find a good application for facial coding and uh, you just have to make sure that if you're going to do it online, that you need to way over recruit because you could possibly lose 75% of your uh, sample due to throw out, right? Mm -hmm. um, also, something we didn't bring up, when we're looking to do webcam-based measures, a big problem is whether or not someone would even agree to do that. So you have a huge dropout just from people saying, you know what, no, I don't wanna be measured by someone recording. Um, so you can end up losing a lot of people that way, and then that can really skew your sample based on who's willing to be recorded, right? That's an interesting point to bring up. Yep, of course. Yeah. So, you know, it's a, it's a mostly thumbs down, I think, um, with a couple of instances where there could be a thumbs up. It's a really popular one to do, though, because it's cheap, right? Uh, and it seems really simple, but, you know, with anything that's going to be emotional, psychological, or neuroscience-based, uh, it's never simple. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Again, we could probably walk, wax poetic on that for, for days. Um, moving on though, behavioral coding. This is a tool that we use quite often when we're thinking about shoppers or with people interacting with a product, like they might be applying makeup on or using a phone or anything, you know, uh, some sort of product that they're going to use. Um, okay. We use behavioral coding to sort of break down how they're doing that act, right? So mm -hmm. what do they do first? Um, how long do they do it? 
Um, what are some of the experiences they have during it, right? Are there any mm -hmm. habitual things? And we quantify it. So the thing about behavioral coding, the coding part, um, means that you're actually coding those behaviors, counting them, and looking at the lengths of time. So then you can quantify that, make it a quant measure so that you can look for differences, say between products or between some other sort of intervention that you might do, some sort of influence of something um, on the experience, like does a fragrance change someone's behavior, does lighting in the store change someone's behavior, um, you know, something like that. Can you learn the process that, that people do, learn something from it? Okay, so so if we were to put this online, this could be really useful when trying to understand maybe a website design. Mm -hmm. And um, sure, yeah. now there's a there's a couple of other interesting things that you could have someone do. They could describe what they're doing. So that's really um, uh, something like a, a what is it? Speak aloud, right? Um, that sometimes people can do in right. gaming research, right? So when people are going through a game, they might describe why they're doing something like. Why did they decide to choose, you know, this particular option or, you know, what they are thinking when they navigate through a game, an online game or a video game. Um, but you could have someone do that in other situations, too. Right, right. And it seems kind of useful because this can be uh, done in a naturalistic environment. So that is a plus to behavioral coding. Sure. Now, there's also um, some companies that are talking about how to use um smart devices in your home to be able to sort of track these sort of behaviors so you could have someone do like a speak aloud um maybe while they're showering if they're saying it to their alexa right oh yes um, or you know describing the process that they're doing while they're washing dishes and using a dish soap so you can imagine how you know using smart devices might give some sort of advantage um, to behavioral coding as well if you wanted to do it remotely or even at home research. So a lot of times when we look at consumer products, there is the product that they measure at a central location test, but they also have a portion of the process where they have people take the product home and use it and sometimes fill mm -hmm. out surveys, um, et cetera. But you know, doing behavioral coding then becomes a challenge, but there may be places that you could do that. You could have them fill out surveys while they're doing it, right? Just on, on their phone, or maybe they use the product while they're on a uh, webcam um, or using something like an Alexa. Right. So it seems like even if you go the Alexa route, it's one of the pros to that is that you're really bringing the evaluation of the product closer to the experience because yeah. as you're going through the process of shampooing your hair, you can be like, oh, I'm really enjoying the amount of suds that I'm getting from this or the smell, you know, yeah. and just verbally and like share this information rather than think back to it. Mm -hmm. It's real time, right? Yeah, right. Yep. So there, there's definitely some advantages there, some learnings that you can have. Um, so I'm going to give this a, a thumbs up. Again, everything's got its caveats, right? So there's mm -hmm. certainly some products you can't do these things with. Again, there's, there's the hurdle of access, you know. So for people who don't have any of these products, like an Alexa or a webcam, you're going to miss out on those people. Right. Psychological assessments. Um, now these we already do online for the most part, right? Right, right. So it could be anything like SAM, self-assessment mannequin on the top left, um, yeah. or implicit uh, reaction time on the bottom. Um, if you're interested in those rather than totally going into them, I recommend listening to our previous uh, vidcasts about them. Um, 
but they, they're really good at looking at, you know, psychological, emotion-based research or associations people might have. These are already done predominantly online. So what are some caveats you can think of? Um, so caveats for implicit, especially would be focusing on word choice. You want to make sure that you're getting the, the right words to use with them. Um, and then I think more importantly, that's a reaction time based, right? Mm -hmm. So again, you have the issue of if people are distracted or if they have some sort of problem with their internet, um, you could have some drop data there, right? Right. And then kind of similarly, Sam, it does, it measures more of the emotion. It's an emotional scale where you're looking at int intensity. Um, but like you said, if somebody's distracted, they're not really going to be fully evaluating how they're feeling and being able, mm -hmm. you know, there's a possibility that they might not be um, fully focusing on on their uh, scale. Right. And we always try when they, they start any survey, right, whether they're doing these measures or just a general survey, we always, you know, try to tell the participant that they need to make sure that they're in a quiet room and there's no distractions around. But of course, you have no control over that, right? And people right, be people. Right. Um, there's a possibility yeah. that they might not have control over it either. They're sure. Dog barking, right? Doorbell yeah, ringing. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But still but very measures argue, to do. Yeah, I would argue two thumbs up for these that yeah. be a really great and easy yeah. way to enhance your research. I'm with you on that. I think that this is a great thing to do right now. Um, it's engaging. It's fun. It's a little different than your typical surveys and you get a little bit more information even. Um, so definitely two thumbs up. So this is something we always like to talk about. Uh, you know, it's one of those meme sort of things that you can see online, but you uh, until you spread your wings, you'll have no idea how far you can walk, right? So that's kind of the joke here. Um, when you try to fly and you try to do any of these measures um, virtually, um, you have no idea how complicated or difficult or wrong they might be, right? Mm -hmm. So the goal here was to try to point out some of those issues. So before you start launching into some remote uh, virtual research, be aware um, that there's going to be drop data, there's going to be distracted participants, um, there's and some pieces where it shouldn't be done. Right. Challenging populations too. If you're trying to work with maybe an elderly population, it might be a little bit harder for them to, uh, yeah. get with the technology. Yeah. For those of us that have been trying to FaceTime with our grandparents, uh, <laughs> for sure. Right. Exactly. <laughs> you always so. have to remind them not to, to unmute themselves. It's always. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, you know, any of these things, can they be done? Yes. Should they be done? Maybe not. Um, in some cases, absolutely go for it. So take, a, take everything with a bit of a grain of salt when you're being sold something. Be aware, be cautious, uh, and try to do things correctly. Ask the right questions. Right. Use the and right tool for the right question. Exactly. And if there are any questions about particulars, always feel free to reach out to us because we are, we are here as a resource to help. And more than anything, we want to make sure that the research is is valid and guided uh, in the correct way so that you get the best research possible. So absolutely. And to that point, um, you can see our email address is here. You can email me or Catherine. Um, you can find us on LinkedIn, HCD Research. Please subscribe below so you can see our upcoming videos and our previous videos and you'll be alerted as they come out. Tweet with us uh, at HCD Research Incorporated or um, HCD Neuroscience where Catherine is always putting up some awesome scientific articles and thoughts. Uh, we also have a blog on our website 
www.hcdi.net backslash blog, where you can see some of our thoughts on any of these and maybe look at some white papers on these methodologies as well. So thank you everybody for joining us and we hope to have you join us again in the future. We will be continuing to do this. Check out the previous ones if you haven't. And uh, yeah, we'll see you next time. Sounds good. Stay well, everybody.